Now, the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. Sometimes it cuts down to the joint and marrow. And let me just paraphrase that. Sometimes it straightens us out. And we're going to do that this morning. Amen? We're going to rightly divide the word of truth. We're going to look at some things that are going on in our society and culture today. And it just reminds us that the Bible presents itself as living and powerful. And therefore, it's relevant. And therefore, we adhere to what the Bible teaches. We don't teach what culture wants to hear. We teach what the Bible says. Even when it is in your face a little bit. So isn't the Holy Spirit the spirit of conviction? So it's okay to get convicted in church. As a matter of fact, let me go as far to say this. If you're not getting convicted in church, you can't possibly be hearing the Word of God. Because that's what it does. It gets down to the heart of the matter. And we're going to talk about some things happening in our world today and things that have even infiltrated the church. And they are in our normal course of study through the book of Ephesians. So are you ready? Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 will cover the balance of the chapter this morning, verses 11 through 22. Now, since we took a break last week, looked at our PowerPoint word for the year last Sunday morning, which is rest. rest. And sometimes we need to come aside for a little while and rest, as Jesus said in our verse we studied last week of Mark 6. And last time we looked at some of the monuments of our faith that come out of our particular book and chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, where we're reminded that God saved us by His grace. Nobody earned it, nobody deserves it, but we got it through God's grace and the measure of faith He has given to each of us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now our first observation last time was a bit of an undoing of the critic of what is called behavior modification gospel. Now, I don't know, why, don't know why anyone would throw that label on the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual Christian, but there are those today who say that, at least in their mind, any suggestion that coming to Christ is going to save you or be evidence of your salvation infringes upon the grace of God. No, it doesn't. It displays the grace of God at work in you. That's what grace means, divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. That's the definition of grace in the New Testament. And since Paul used the behavior of the unsaved to make his point regarding their condition as dead in sin we made this point of application in reverse, so to speak. And that is that if conduct identifies those who are not saved, then conduct can identify those who are. If Paul and the Bible and the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write about the moral decisions and activities of those who are lost or dead in sin, then we can certainly know that there is a point of identity through behavior and belief that is true of the Christian as well. Now, the simple fact that Paul uses behavior to describe the unsaved implies a behavioral change once you are saved. And this doesn't infringe upon the grace of God at all. Amen? Amen. And we also made the point that the dead and alive serve different kings and kingdoms. And the fact of the matter is, through our illustration of contrasting the traffic rules and laws of Great Britain with our own country, if you change which kingdom you're in, you have to adapt to the rules of the road of that kingdom, right? Because if you go to Great Britain or England and say, I'm going to obey American traffic laws no matter where I am, there's going to be problems. And they might even be catastrophic. And so too, when we change kings and kingdoms, we're going to behave according to our new king and the laws of that particular country. We're citizens of heaven, amen? Amen. Now, in the famed trio of verses, 8 through 10 of chapter 2, we made this question, or we posed this question, I should say, how can we not live to declare him after all he's done for us? I mean, it's only a reasonable response, right? After making us alive when we were dead in sins and trespasses, then we need to recognize that living to declare him is our only option. We found that the Hebrew word for worship means exactly that, to live, to declare. And in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, in the temptation of Jesus, we're told, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, him being Jesus, 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, Satan, said to him, Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and do what? Worship me. Worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. By the way, we need to incorporate that into our uh, vocabulary today. Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you what? Serve. Shall you serve. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.13 in response to Satan's offer to avoid the cross, because that's what he was offering him. He understood that Jesus came into the world through the woman that's described as Israel in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture as well. He came to redeem the fallen world. He came to bruise the serpent's head or crush the serpent's head as the serpent would bruise his heel. So Satan offered the avoidance of the cross to Jesus if only he would fall down and worship him. Listen, Satan worship is just denying Jesus. Rejecting Jesus. That's what it is, period. You're either for him or against him. There are only two camps in the world today. Satan is the god of this world, so he could offer the world to Jesus by bypassing the cross and just or in exchange for worship of him. But what we need to notice that Jesus quoted is that worship and serving are paired together. That's how we worship the Lord. We live to declare him by serving him. We live to declare him by proclaiming him. And thus we need to be identifiable as subjects of a new kingdom. And that kingdom being the kingdom of the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, Paul turns to a subject that is vitally needed today as he addresses the transition that the coming ministry, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus has brought into the world. Now he describes all these things as God having created, and here's our title taken right out of our text, One New Man. One New Man is our title. Now remember in what I call the preamble to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 3-8, Jesus said there's going to be ethnic tensions as part of of the last days scenario. Is that going on right now? Yes. Are we in the last days right now? Yes. Is Jesus coming soon? Yes. Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when he's not expected. Today be a good day. Yes. Amen. Amen. And he says within the last days scenario an escalation and a birth bang like progression of nation against nation. Now he said Basilea versus Basilea. Those are the Greek terms which describe a kingdom or a governmental system. Is there international governmental strife today? Yeah, yeah. Yes. But he also said nation against nation which is ethnos against ethnos or ethnicity against ethnicity. And Paul here is going to say that kind of thing is not to be found in the church. Yeah. Ethnic tensions are not to be found yeah. in the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, we're not supposed to be anything like the world. Nothing like the world. No matter our ethnicity or social status, we are one new man in Christ Jesus. Now, chapter 3, Paul will say this. For you are all sons of God through faith, in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Amen. There is neither slave nor free. He talks about social status here. There is neither male nor female or any of the other 72 genders. No, there's just, that's the end of the gender list, right? Male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, here's the foundation we need to lay for our time. In Paul's day, the Jews had tremendous contempt for the Gentiles. They said the Gentiles were created for one reason, and that is to fuel the fires of hell. This contempt ran so deep that it was against the law for a Jew to help a Gentile woman give birth. If she helped a woman or if, uh, uh, what do they call the, the, the midwife helped the Gentile woman uh, give birth to their child, all she was doing was assisting and bringing a pagan into a fallen world. 
If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Gentile girl married a Jewish boy, the family conducted a funeral. For a Jew marrying a Gentile was equivalent to death in the eyes of the Jews. Now, the Gentiles had their own animosity for the Jews. Plato said that the barbarians, people who weren't Greek, the rest of the world, were enemies by nature. And Titus Livius, who went by the name, he was a Roman historian, Livy, or the uh, uh, nickname, jeez. <laughs> What in the world is going on this morning? The nickname Livy confirmed this in this day. He said the Greeks wage a truceless war. In other words, it can't be reconciled. A truceless war against people of other races, against barbarians. In other words, if you're not a Greek, you're a barbarian. So the Gentiles had the same type of mentality. And of course, this is evidenced by ultimately the imperialistic Romans as they decimated the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple under Titus in 70 AD. And then Hadrian, the Roman emperor, emperor executed hundreds of thousands of Jews during the Bar Kokhba revolution of 132 to 36 AD. Paul says, not in God's church. Amen. There's no place for racism. There's no place for social elitism in the body of Christ because the church comes from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and God has created one new man through Jesus Christ. So let's find out what that one new man looks like. Are you ready this morning? Stand and read with me, please. We'll break our section down into three bites, the first being 11 to 13. So would you read Ephesians chapter 2? 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord, we thank you this morning that you can't limit the atoning power of the blood of Jesus. It is able to save all, sufficient to cover all sin, those far from you and those not as far. And we pray, God, this morning that you would correct our thinking where necessary and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church of 2021. And help us, God, not to get sucked into this nonsense that is happening all around us in this world that create perilous times in these last days. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Now we need to remember where this chapter began in 1 to 3, where we're told, as we mentioned earlier, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which... You once walk, walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. Paul is incorporating the Jew into this. In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? of wrath just as the others. Now Paul says that we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. And again, this implies a change of life after coming to Christ. Now we also need to remember that this is true for Jew and Gentile alike. Isn't that what he said? Yes. We too. We too lived according to the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, meaning the Gentiles. Now this tells us something we need to remember today. Dual covenant theology is heresy. Amen. Dual covenant theology is heresy. What is dual covenant theology? That the Jews can be saved by adhering to the law. No, they can't. The law had no provision for, for saving. It only killed all. That's why Paul says the law kills. Yep. But by grace through faith, we can be saved. Amen. Amen. Now, how can a Jew be saved? What well, can wash away our sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, understanding that allows us to move forward with knowing that Paul is pointing out a historical fact. He is not highlighting divine favoritism. And it's important to recognize that the Jews themselves misapplied God's choosing and turned it into divine favoritism instead of personal responsibility. 
He gave them the responsibility to do what the church is also called to do, and that is tell people about God. Go to the world and preach, preach the gospel to all the people we like. No. All the people we agree with. No. All the people that look like us. No. no. To every creature. Now, this is important because there are some today who believe that there are people that when they are born, they're going to hell. And there are people that when they are born are going to be drawn in by the irresistible grace of God and go to heaven. And the groups, you cannot change groups, so to speak. If you're predestined for hell, that's where you're going. You cannot come to faith in Christ. You know what that sounds like? It sounds exactly like what the Jews believed. And it sounds exactly the opposite of the one new man that Christ has created. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 60, the prophet writes, verse 3, The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Is Isaiah in the Old Testament? Sounds like the Old Testament teaches that the Gentiles are going to come to the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Now listen, according to Romans 3, 2, God chose the Jews. Paul answered the question, what advantage is there to being a Jew? He said, well, advantage in every way. To them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, God called on the Jews to write the Old Testament, to record the words of the prophets and Moses and the poets and uh, the historians. And he included uh, the Jews in writing the New Testament as well, except for Acts and, and Luke, which was written by a Gentile. Luke, the most dominant author of the New Testament by volume. So God chose the Jews to be the recorders of his oracles. He called them to be evangelists to the Gentiles, and yet the Jews saw his choosing of them as divine election to salvation and all Gentiles condemned to hell by birth. Now, why would Jesus then say you must be born again, born again if your first birth meant that you were headed for heaven? Now, in spite of all this and the error and the animosity of the Jews toward the Gentiles, Paul says to the Gentiles, he describes them as those who are far off, which is a common phrase of the Old Testament to describe the Gentiles. He says, listen, Gentiles, you have to remember that not only were you aliens from the nation of Israel, you were alienated from God. He'll say that in Colossians 1, and 22. We were all enemies of God. We were all estranged from him. And he also says they were strangers from the covenants of God. And because of that, they were without hope. And because they were without God, even in that pagan world, which was very religious and temples and statues everywhere, including one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus, or the uh, Artemis being the Roman name or Latin name, Diana being the name that she was known by in Ephesus, modern day Turkey. So they were very, very religious, yet Paul says you were far from God. Why would he say that? Well, because the Bible says in Jeremiah 10, 6-8, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, Amen. there's none like you, O Lord, Amen. you are great and your great name is might, or in might. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations, for this is your rightful due? For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless what? Doctrine. Remember, doctrine means teaching. And to teach that there is a statue that is equivalent to God is foolish. It is a foolish doctrine of the dull-hearted. Now, this is what Paul is pointing out to Gentile believers. Listen, you were outside of God's chosen people, represented by your being uncircumcised. They were once far off, meaning they were far from God. But now in Christ Jesus, they have been brought near by his blood. Listen, here's what Paul's saying. We need to remember what we've been saved from. We need to remember how far we were from God when he reached down from heaven and decided to save mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. We were all far off. Now, we've now been brought near. How near? We'll talk about in a moment. But Paul is saying what he already said in verses 1 through 3 and adding to the fact that the Gentiles were even further off from God because they didn't have a covenant relationship with him like the Jews. Now, this brings us to the first thing we need to highlight about the one new man that came through the blood of Christ and why no one, say no one, no. 
why no one should think they are any better than another because of their ethnicity or life status. And that's this. You ready? Since we all have the same sin problem, we all require the same solution. Since we all have the same sin problem, we all require the same solution. Now, the Gentiles were far off. Paul said, you know what? We were too. We once walked in the same things. We once had hearts filled with uh, flesh, lust of the flesh, and our minds as well. Now listen, here's something important that we need to recognize. The Gentiles may have been further off, but off is off. If you're off, you're off. And aren't you glad that there's nobody that's so far off that God can't save them? That's so far gone that God can't save them. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile way off worshiping a worthless idol. God can still save you. He can still bring you away from that. He can still bring you into his kingdom. And therefore, you don't have to be a certain ethnicity or born into the right group in order for God to save you. You can be far off or just a little off, but God can rescue you from the second death and save your perishing soul. Now, in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, Moses says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, meaning ancestors, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now listen to the similar verbiage that Peter uses in Second or First Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a what? Chosen. chosen generation. What did Moses say? God has chosen you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special, special people. He called the Jews a special treasure, the Israelites. Why? that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the same reason God set his love on Israel. Because he wanted them to proclaim to the darkness the marvelous light of God. And then Peter would add, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now listen, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, God did the choosing. God did the choosing to save us all. He chose the Jews because he promised to bring a Savior into the world and chose to do so through the Israelites or the Jews. He committed to them his oracles, as we mentioned earlier. Now, Gentiles are his people because he chose them too. He chose to send a Savior into the world through the Jews to save both Jew and Gentiles and make one new man of those two groups, which divided all of humanity in the minds of Israel. Now listen close. You still here? Yes. Not one person, not one person has ever lived such a holy and pure life that they deserve to be saved. Not one person, not one Jew, not one Gentile. It was only God's choosing to save in spite of us, not because of us, that anyone is saved. Those who were near and those who are far off all have the same sin problem and thus require the same solution. And the solution to our sin problem is the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Luke 18, 9 to 14, he, Jesus, spoke this parable, parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they did what? They despised others. Tuck that word despised away for later. And he gave this example. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one Pharisee, uh, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. That tells you how far his prayer went. <laughs> God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a, twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He's got eye trouble, obviously. And the tax collector standing afar off 
would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, say everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, listen. As I said, God doesn't save anyone because of who they are or what ethnic group they were born into. He saves us all in spite of who we are and what we have done. No one, no ethnic group, no caste, no social or financial status makes one group more worthy than another for all have sinned and thus all need the same solution for their sin and that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are the one new man. Amen? Now, let's look at 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man, there's our title, from the two, thus making what? Peace. Peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. There's Jew and Gentile. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now at the time of Paul's writing on the grounds of Herod's temple, there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the balance of the temple grounds. And on that wall were inscriptions written in stone and Latin and Greek forbidding Gentiles to enter. Now Josephus wrote about these inscriptions and excavations were made in 1871 and 1934 where these stones with these inscriptions were found and they read as follows, and I quote, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. End of the quote. In other words, if you pass this barricade, we're going to kill you. And you'll only have yourself to blame. These stones were called thanatos. They were death inscriptions. And they're now on display in the Archaeological Museum in Istanbul, Turkey, and the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. So these aren't rumors. These are facts. Now, Paul says this type of thinking was abolished, meaning destroyed, by Christ coming in the flesh. He himself is our peace, who is made Jew and Gentile one, and through the cross created one new man, and from the two putting to death the enmity, which means hostility and hatred between these two ethnic groups, between those spiritually afar off and those spiritually near. Now this is why John the Beloved would write so aggressively on this subject as well in 1 John. He said in 2, 9 through 11, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in what? Darkness, darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In the next chapter, 3, 13 to 15, John would say, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now Paul says through Jesus, Jew and Gentile, which were the two categories the world was divided into spiritually, both have access by one spirit to the one Father. Now that means, listen close now, you ready for this? Yes. The only segregation we should see in the church is by language, not skin tone. Amen. The only segregation we should see in the church is by language, not skin tone, not social status. Segregation means to separate. And the word hate John used means to despise. And that means the Bible says despising others is not part of the Christian life, Amen. but is evidence of your old nature and can even reveal that one is unsaved. Now, 
the next chapter in John's first epistle says in 7 through 11 of 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us that he sent his only begotten Son to die for our sins, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we ought to have that kind of love for each other. Amen. Now, here's one of the interesting things from John and Paul. I'm not talking about the Beatles, by the way. <laughs> Paul was a former Pharisee, and John was a former fisherman. They were both Jews, but they were both from opposite ends of the social spectrum. Paul was among the elite. John was a working man. And yet they both arrived at the same conclusion that in Christ there's no separation. Amen. There's no separation of Jew and Gentile. There's no social separation within the body of Christ. There's only one new man whose primary attribute is love for one another. Amen. Now, here's what we need to glean from this as our second consideration. Listen, there is no peace apart from God and only peace when you are in Him. Amen. There is no peace apart from God and only peace when you are in Him. Now, three times in our verses, we find the word peace. First, we find that Jesus is our peace. Then we find that Jesus made peace. And then we see that Jesus preached peace. Seems like peace was important to Jesus. Amen. Now, the word peace here means oneness. It can also be translated as harmony. And I know we live in an age of hot-button topics and triggers for many in our world today, but I have to say virtually every commentator I read this week mentioned that what Jesus did at the cross was to create a new race of humans. Amen. He created a new race, and they're all the same race. Not Jewish Christians nope. and not Gentile Christians. Just Christians. Amen. No categories. Just one new man who share the peace that passes understanding, who love each other, and who all have access to the Father by the Holy Spirit that is in them all. And in Isaiah 57, 19 through 21, the prophet says this, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace. Now listen to this. Peace, peace. To him who is far off. Remember, that's a Hebraism for the Gentiles. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. One who is near, speaking of the Jews, says the Lord. Now get this. And I will heal. What's the next word? Him. him. So he speaks of two and then he puts it in the singular. I will heal him. How's he going to do that? He's going to do that through the oneness that we enjoy through Jesus. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now, what the Lord is saying is that if we're going to be distinct from anybody, it ought to be from the wicked, not each other. There shouldn't be divisions within the body of Christ. We ought to be distinguished from the wicked of the world who have no peace, not from each other. And listen, I fully understand the sensitivities and the tensions of our day, but here's what we need to understand. The tensions and sensitivities of our day do not override Scripture. Amen. Listen this morning. An ethnically mixed city ought to be filled with ethnically mixed churches. Amen. And if everybody has to look like you, in your church, right. you don't get what That's Jesus right. did at all. Right. We don't congregate according to skin color or ethnicity. There may be language barriers, but there should never be a love barrier. And listen this morning. Are you ready? I'm getting feisty. Are you ready? 
if we have to go to a church where everybody identifies with the same biblical interpretation of a certain aspect of the Christian faith, we don't have a clue what it means to be one new man. If everybody in your church has to be reformed, then you don't believe enough in what you believe that it can stand the test of people who think differently. There ought to be Calvinists in every free will church. There ought to be reformed people in every Arminius church. We are the body of Christ. There is one set of believers, and all of these divisions are of the devil and not of the Lord. There is one new man. And listen, there are people who hold to the Calvinist belief system that come to this church, and you know what? I love it. I'll talk to them anytime. And we can agree to disagree, but we're going to do it agreeably. And I'm not going to condemn them to hell because they think something is different than the way I think. If you are blood-bought, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus Christ, then we are part of the one new man. And listen, I'm solid enough on what I believe that somebody can criticize it. And somebody can challenge it. I don't have to surround myself with people who think just like me. And we are doing damage to the peace that has been brought through Jesus Christ. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked, Isaiah says. And listen. Okay, I'm coming, coming back down. This message has been keeping me up for days. There's one new man who is created in Christ. And all the divisions and segregation we see today are denials of the peace that the Lord is, the peace that the Lord brought, and the peace that the Lord preached. And he himself is our peace. And the body of Christ should be known for its love and the peace that we enjoy that is exclusive to those who are in Christ. Amen? Now, Okay, I think my, my blood pressure's coming back down a little bit. So. Now, let's look at 19 to 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's an important phrase. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, Paul describes this group called the one new man as citizens. Heaven, obviously, is implied. And members of the household of God, which, why, which is why he could write this about our position in Christ in chapter 4. And because you are sons, he'll say in 6 and 7, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, again, we see the birthplace of this implied through that particular phrase that we paused on. He mentions that we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Were there prophets in the Old Testament? Why does he list apostles first? Because he's talking about the age in which we now live. The age where God is not dealing directly with the Jews, his chosen people, but he is directing his attention to the church, even though he has never forgotten nor forsaken the Jews. Amen? Amen. Now, this gives us a chronology and a point of identification of a beginning. And that is it all started the season of the oneness between the two groups during the age of the apostles and prophets, with Christ being the cornerstone himself. Now, a couple of things. The fact that Paul would list apostles before prophets tells us he's speaking of the New Testament age, and we'll see this established further in chapter 4. Secondly, he establishes Jesus as the cornerstone in his illustration of the one new man being a temple, a holy temple, to the Lord. Now, when building a structure out of stone, the cornerstone is always set first because it determines the rest of the building's ability to fit together. 
If the cornerstone was off, the rest of the building would be off. If there was a starting point other than the cornerstone, the same thing would happen. Other corners of the structure wouldn't meet, or one side would be longer than the other, and you'd wind up building a parallelogram instead of a cube or whatever it is you were trying to build. In other words, the building would be a mess. It wouldn't fit together. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11, Paul says this. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, Paul displays his love of metaphor and all its glory. He mixes the agrarian and the architectural and again mentions the foundation of Christ is essential to God's building and only through Christ as the foundational cornerstone can someone build on it, at least build accurately. He then reminds us that we're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, as he would say this clearly in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Now, it may be secondary, secondary, and it may be subtle, but there's a point we need to make from this, and that is since uh, those who are a part of the one new man are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and they're all over the world, and they're from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, that says there is no geographic location or host country who can claim exclusivity to being the dwelling place of God. Because where does he live? He lives in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's no question that Jerusalem is special in the eyes of God. Amen. That's where Jesus is coming back to. He's going to set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. There's no question that the temple was a special place. The Lord said, I will hear prayers made in this place when Solomon put the temple before him as an offering. Now, but here's what we need to understand. Neither Jerusalem nor the temple is a substitute for the person of Jesus Christ. And we're talking about the age that began with the apostles, not the Old Testament age that included prophets. Now, in John 2, 18 to 22, having cast out the money changers and drove, drove them out uh, with whips who were selling goods on the temple grounds, <coughs> Jesus answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now John would also write this regarding the New Jerusalem in the Apocalypse, so the unveiling of Christ we call the book of Revelation. In 21:22, John said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, there's no Mecca in the Christian faith. There's no geographic location where we can go and make a pilgrimage and commune with God. There's no temple to visit because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. Now, what that translates into as a point is simply this. Listen. The church has the same calling in every community and country. The church has the same calling in every community and country. And since there is no holy place for the people of the world to go and meet with God, God made his people a holy place and sent them out to the world. And with Paul's mention of the Spirit, we need to recognize the purpose of the Spirit alongside of it being a, him being a guarantee of our future inheritance, which we studied in Ephesians 1.13. But Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, a geographic area they call the West Bank today, and to the end of the earth. I believe the end of the earth is not just a location. I also believe it is a point in time. Now, with all that's going on in the church today, we need to remember our point because we're not here. Listen. We're not here. Are you listening? Yes. We are not here to right every social injustice. We are here to preach Christ in an unjust world. A world that is filled with injustices. 
We are not here to meet every social need of our community and country. We are here to preach Christ to the poor and to the rich. This is what we receive the power to do so as temples of the Holy Spirit. This is the calling of the one new man who lives all around the world to be witnesses to Jesus, not social justice warriors and not political ideologues. And for those who argue that if the church met the felt needs of the masses, people would be more open to the gospel, you're going to have a hard time selling that one to Jesus. Because he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He cleansed the lepers. He cast out demons. And he wound up on the cross. And some yelled, crucify him, whom he had done one of those things or more for. Now listen. The church has the same calling in every community and country. Telling people about Jesus. And then, when the church does that, the Holy Spirit's power is going to be manifested in any way necessary to save erring human souls. And listen, the Jews are the chosen people of God, to be sure. Jerusalem is a holy city without a doubt. But in the church age, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we don't need to go up to Jerusalem, go to a temple to meet with God. The temple of God needs to go out to the people of the world who are perishing and proclaim Him to them. And every person in every country of the world has the same sin problem, and thus there's but a single solution. And the peace the world longs for and desires is impossible apart from the Prince of Peace. And the peace that is exclusive to those who are in Him. And listen, God wants us to meet, as Paul would say even to Titus, meet urgent needs. And he wants us to care for the poor. He wants us to do all those things, but those things are all secondary to proclaiming Christ and him crucified. That is our primary message. That is why we have the power that we have been given of the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation 5, 8 through 10, we're told when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll. Now remember the backdrop for this is there was him who sat on the throne and in his right hand was a scroll and the living and the dead, heaven and earth were searched for one who was worthy to open the scroll and no one was found and John said, and then I turned and saw a lamb as if it had been slain and he was found worthy to open the scrolls. Now when he, the lamb who had been slain, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now listen, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Amen. That's where we're going. Amen. Shouldn't we be living like we're on the way? Amen. Shouldn't we be living like we're all one new man in Christ Jesus? Wouldn't we be more effective if we did act this way? If our primary attribute was love, wouldn't all the world know that we are his disciples? And isn't it the love of God that brings man to repentance? Where'd you go? Yes. And listen, what a privilege it is to be within the body of Christ. To be dead in sin and be made alive by Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to know that he is doing that to every skin tone, social status, geographic location he is taking people from all over the world forgiving their sin by covering it with the blood of the lamb and making one new man from all over the world listen that's something we ought to be celebrating this world is messed up but we're not of the world we're from a different king and kingdom we ought to address and handle these things completely different than the world And listen, that doesn't mean that we simply bow down and let the world steamroll us. That doesn't mean that we fall over and play dead when the government wants to take our rights. Listen, Paul 
when the law of the Romans was violated against Paul, he said, really? You're going to bind a Roman citizen? And the one who had him bound and was about to beat him likely to death said, well, I obtained my citizenship at a great fun. Paul said, I was born a Roman. Yep. So you know what he was doing? He was using his rights as a Roman citizen to keep the Roman government or the representative of it from violating his rights. Listen, we better stand for our First Amendment rights. We better stand for our Second Amendment rights. We better stand for the Third Amendment rights. We better, you get the point? That's okay for us to do that. But that's not our mission. Our mission is preaching Christ and Him crucified. And that's what Paul used, why Paul used his citizenship to his advantage. Because he had a calling. He had a commissioning. And it didn't matter where he was. It didn't matter if he was in Asia Minor or the capital of the Roman Empire standing before Caesar. He knew what he had to do. He wasn't going to shake his finger in Caesar's face and say, you know what, you're not treating us fairly. He would shake his finger in Caesar's face and say, you know what, you need Jesus. Amen. That's what we're here for, right? Yeah. This world is rotten. Amen. This world is rotten. Amen. And only the King of Kings and Lord of Lords can fix it. Amen. And he's going to. Now, we don't turn a blind eye. That's not what I'm saying. You get that, right? That's right. But we don't abandon our primary mission of focus Amen. in order to right social injustices. We preach Jesus, and that's the church's mission and commission in every community and country around the world because we are one new man in Christ Jesus. Somebody say, Amen. And Father, we again are grateful for your word. We thank you, Lord, for... Uh, Paul's passion and for his wisdom and we thank you God that we as we mentioned this morning we find from all sections of the social spectrum and strata of Paul's day people who you used to write truth and speak it in love and help us Lord to see what you called us to be and do as our primary goal and mission in life and that is to love one another that the whole world may know that we're your disciples, that we're distinct from all the bickering and infighting and ethnic and social tensions that are destroying our beautiful world and country. Help us, God, to be distinct in our attitudes. Help us all to realize there's but one new man from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, a people you bought back from the darkness with your own blood. And help us, Lord, as Paul hinted out in the opening of our section, never to forget what you brought us out of and made us into. New creations in Christ, one new man through your blood. We praise you, we exalt you, and help us, Lord, to proclaim you as the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. We thank you for our time together today. And help us, Lord, not to Abandon the things that we heard and learned today, but help us to practice and preach them in the days ahead. Even so, we ask, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.